Amen. It is good to sing the praises of God Almighty, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. What a beautiful morning this morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my consistent and awesome privilege of bringing the Word of God to you today. As we open this morning, I just want to ask you a question. Are you open to hearing the Word of God today? You know, sometimes when we open the Word and it catches us off guard, we fight against it a little bit. Don't we have the habit to do that sometimes when it critiques or challenges us? We sometimes, uh, we sometimes resist it a little bit. I just want to encourage you today that what we're going to be looking at is, a, is an amazing realization uh, that Jesus helps the disciples to see. There's this beautiful part in the gospel of Mark. And what I don't want for us to do is to just kind of run up on it and not receive it fully. And so I just want to ask you today, whether you've been in church for 150 years or whether this is the first time that you've ever been in a, in a church building, I just want to ask you, as we open the Word of God, that you would come to it in a position in which you yield to it and to which you're ready to hear what God would teach you this morning through Scripture. We're in Mark chapter 8. I invite you to open there uh, if you have a copy of the Bible. Uh, if you peek around, you'll probably notice some people looking at their phones. That's because they are definitely opening the Bible and not texting each other, right? But some of us like to look at our phones and some of us like to look at copies of the Scripture. If you're here today, and you don't have a copy of the Bible and you want one, we'd love to give you a copy. We know that a lot of people love it digitally and there's the Bible download that you can put on your phone. But if you want the old printed copy, we'd love to give you one. See me after the service and we'll definitely get you a copy. Uh, just like the one that I preach from, we give these away every week and we'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. If you're online and you need a copy of God's Word, send us a message, drop a comment there, or email us, and we'll make sure that we get you a copy uh, of Scripture. Let's look together. We're not looking at very many verses today, but it is packed with theology. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be studying verses 27 through 30, as you notice that probably if you've looked at your notes yet this morning. But here's what God's word says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples. So they're just traveling. They're just talking. And Jesus asked this question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And I want to pause right there before we read through the whole text. And let me just set this up so that we don't have a misunderstanding about what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't an egotistical narcissist where he just needs to hear what everybody is saying about him. Have you ever been around those type of people that you need consistent and continual praise? That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is helping the disciples to understand something really important. And so it begins with this question, what is the world at large saying about me? What is, I guess to use our phrase, what's pop culture saying about me? What are your friends saying about me? When you walk with people in the road or when you bump into them at the marketplace, what are people saying about me? It isn't that Jesus needs somebody to feed his ego. Uh, it's that he wants people to zero in and focus in on what 
people are thinking about who he is. And so he asked his disciples as they're walking to the next village, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. If you're new to the Christian faith, you may not know who John the Baptist is. He is a prominent and important figure in the New Testament. And the same is true of Elijah, except for Elijah figures in into the Old Testament. So some people are saying you are this really important figure in, in modern era. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think that you're the prophet Elijah who's been resurrected from the dead. Some people think that, that you are the Elijah of old in the Old Testament and you've been resurrected from the dead. And, and then they, they go on to say, and some people don't have any idea who you are. They just think that you're this prophet that is among us. And then Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? What a question, right? Who, who does the public at large say I am? Well, they say that you're John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. Verse 29 says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Some of your translations will use the word Messiah instead of Christ. Some of your translations will use the word anointed one instead of Christ or Messiah. But the point there is that Jesus, you are the one that has been sent to liberate us from bondage. And you're the one who've been sent to set us free is what Peter is saying to Jesus. And then look at this strange thing that Jesus says. Verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? I mean, we're going to get to the end of the gospel, right? Where Jesus says, go and tell everybody, teach everybody, preach to everybody, disciple everybody, baptize everybody in my name. And here he is in this key moment in the gospel of Mark where he's like, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. Wouldn't it be natural for us to think that Jesus would look Peter dead in his eyes and go, you are dead on, man. Go tell the world. But he doesn't. He strictly charges them to tell no one. What is up with that? Well, I want to address that because it's kind of like this mental block, right? We need to understand what's going on there so that we can move on to our notes and look at these three responses that we're going to be looking at this morning. But what he's doing there is he's telling his disciples, you need to pause because you need to understand what it means to be called the Messiah before you go and tell the world. You see, we're looking this morning, these few verses in Mark chapter eight, they, they are basically, they're like the shift that's about to happen in the gospel. It's like the point where you pivot and, and all of a sudden you go from who is Jesus to, oh my goodness, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, and Jesus is, it, it, this, the point shifts from this, who is discovering Jesus, and he, he is the Messiah, and, and now from eight all the way to the end of the gospel, we're talking about what does it mean to be the Messiah, 
And so Jesus doesn't want them to run out into the public square and start announcing him as Messiah because the disciples haven't yet discovered that he would be a suffering Messiah, that he would be a crucified Messiah, that he would be a Messiah uh, who, who would be broken and bloody for our sin and, and put on the cross. And, and so they think that as the Messiah, he is going to walk right up to the Roman leadership of the day and just like hit them with this colossal theological uppercut and liberate everybody, not just physically, but governmentally and everything. So they had this false expectation of what it meant to say that Jesus was the Messiah and the anointed one that was going to come liberate them. And so when Peter says, you are the Messiah, Jesus says, pump your brakes and understand what it means for me to be the Messiah. And then you can go and tell the world. So Mark 1 through 8 is about the disciples discovering that Jesus is the sent one. And chapters 8 through 16, we will discover, is about understanding that the sent one is one who will suffer and be crucified. So that's why Jesus says that to the disciples and strictly urges them not to tell anyone about this because he wants them to understand first the suffering that must come, which is what we're going to be looking at next week. But this week, we're looking at these responses. Back to your notes this morning. The first response that we're looking at is the people's response. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're on the way to Caesarea Philippi. I don't know, some of them might be telling jokes. They may be talking about where they're going to eat lunch or whatever, but eventually they get to this important conversation. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they say, oh my goodness, Jesus, people are all over the place. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah and you've been resurrected from the dead. Some people have no idea. They just think you're a prophet. And the reason that I bring this up and the reason I want for us to study, not just notice, but to study the response it's because I have a theory that just like this was the type of response in Peter's culture, in pop culture in that time, I think that it's a similar response in today's world. Because in essence, what the disciples are saying to Jesus is this. Jesus, people understand you are an important person. Jesus, people understand that you are an exciting purpose person. I mean, if you know the Bible, you know that Elijah was an exciting character of the Old Testament. And John the Baptist, although a little strange and weird, was a very exciting person in the New Testament. The prophets, if you go back and study the prophets in the Old Testament, you will discover they were very exciting, charismatic, powerful, and important figures in God's word, the disciples were essentially saying, they think you're important. They think you're exciting. They think that you are well thought of. People respected John the Baptist. People had a healthy respect for the prophet Elijah. People usually had a respect for the prophets, depending on if the prophets were speaking to you directly or not. But they had a respect. They were well thought of. They were noteworthy. Isn't that a lot like our culture? If you were to just walk out to the street 
and flag the first car that drives by down and have them roll their window down and say, hey, I'm listening to my pastor preach right now. And I just wonder, because we're talking about what people think about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? They probably look at you like you're crazy. And then they would say something like, he's a great guy. He's a cool guy. He's an important guy. He's a compassionate guy. He's an important figure in human history. He was a good teacher. Maybe they would even say he was a miracle worker, right? And so the point that I'm making is that our culture struggles with the same thing that the culture struggled with when Jesus was walking on earth, executing his ministry here. Everybody thinks highly of him, but they have an incomplete view of who he is. That's why Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, okay, who do you say that I am? Now, everybody around us says Jesus is important. John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet, the important, well thought of, exciting, noteworthy. And then he looks at the disciples. Who do you say I am? And Peter, he's almost always the first one to speak. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the liberator. I don't know what word is used in your translation, but the point being, Peter takes it a step further. And instead of saying you're an important person in our culture and our heritage and the religion of Judaism, he says, no, you are more than that. Are you noteworthy? Yes, but you're more than that. Are you well thought of? Yes, but you're more than that. Are you important? Yes, but you're more than that. Are you exciting? Yes, but you're more than that. You are the one who has come and you've been sent by God himself and you've come from heaven to liberate us. You see, Peter's response was more theologically accurate, not because the, the townspeople had it wrong. They just had it incomplete. I guess I would say it this way. Let's say you and I have never met before. And we bump into each other at a party or a cookout. And we're hanging out and we're talking and you're like, oh, what's your name? And I'm, my name is Zach. Oh, what's your name? And we start talking about whatever, about how the Astros destroyed the Yankees this past week or, uh, sorry, Dale. I, I could not hold myself in. <laughs> Are we talk about the weather, about how hot it is and how we're ready for the fall when last year we were saying, I can't wait for summer and summer's here and now we're ready for something else. We talk about whatever we're talking about at a party, right? And Crystal, who if you don't know this, is the name of my wife and, and Crystal is there and she's standing next to me and you say to me, oh, who is this? And I look at her and I look at you. And I say, oh, she's just a... She's just a lady I met a long time ago. Now, is that accurate? It's accurate. But is it incomplete? Yes. And will I pay for it later? <laughs> yes. Crystal was in the first service. She just left to take Hannah to, to uh, youth camp. She was in the first service. And when I said, well, I pay for it later, I looked over and she's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you may pay for that illustration, right? 
But you understand what I'm saying. So it isn't that the townspeople had it wrong. They did, it's not that they didn't think he was important or that he thought he was a wicked man. It's that he, they knew that he was important, but it was incomplete. And Peter fills in that space when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, which means a couple of things. It means that the people desperately needed to be liberated because they couldn't liberate themselves. They desperately need to be saved because they couldn't save themselves. They desperately needed someone to set them free because they couldn't set themselves free. They needed a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one, a liberator, because they couldn't liberate themselves. And that's important for us to understand. That it isn't enough for us to know that we need to be liberated. We need to be connected. We need to have a relationship with the liberator. The one who sets us free. And so the very response that Peter gives teaches us so much theology. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the one who have been sent from heaven to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You are the Christ. And we've looked at two responses so far. We've looked at the, the people, the townspeople, the city, the other's response. And we've looked at Peter's response. And the third response, if you're in your notes this morning and you're making notes, and you, you'd see that there's three responses. The people's response, Peter's response. And you're like filing through, right? Going, well, who's the third one? The third one is you. Your response and one of the things that I want for us to do this morning is to kind of navigate this, not just historically understanding what is going on in the text and not just literarily where we know that the first eight chapters builds up to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and then the next eight chapters build up to what that means, but a personal study as well. What does it mean for us to grapple with Jesus asking us the question, who do you say that I am? That's why the title of this morning's message is, what about you? We know what the townspeople thought. We know what Peter thought. We're assuming that he spoke for all of the disciples. But what's your response to the question from Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And I want to take some time this morning and just make some observations here because I think it's important for us as we process the importance of this text. I think it's important for us to think about some of these observations that we find. And again, this isn't a whole long scripture, right? It's like really compact and compacted into all of these few verses are a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you. I've written them down so that I don't say them wrong or, or blow past them and forget them. But the first thing that I wrote down is this. Positive thoughts about Jesus doesn't make you right with God. Let me say that again. Positive thoughts 
about Jesus doesn't make you right with God. And that may be strange for some of you this morning. If you're watching online, you may be going, what, what are you talking about? I think highly of Jesus. So did the townspeople, but they weren't right with God. They weren't a disciple of Jesus. They weren't included right in the kingdom of God. Thinking that Jesus is an important figure in history doesn't make you right with God. Thinking that Jesus would have been an exciting person to follow around doesn't make you right with God. Thinking that Jesus was a compassionate person doesn't make you right with God. Thinking that Jesus was a great teacher and he cared about people doesn't make you right with God. And that's the whole point, I think, of this scripture is when Jesus says to, to the disciples, who do the people say I am? And there's nothing but positive things to say. But the point of that theologically is there's a lot of people who think positive, good thoughts about Jesus, but they're not right with God. And I think that's important for us to notice in the scripture because that is a really relevant thought for us in the culture in which we live. I don't know about you. I can only tell you for me, I have tons of conversations with people who think just because they esteem Jesus or think highly of Jesus, that they're all good. And one day when they close their eyes in death, then there is an eternity of bliss waiting for them because they think Jesus is a cool guy who taught great things and had compassion on people. And there will be millions of people separated from God for eternity that spent their whole life thinking that very thing. Positive thoughts about Jesus doesn't make you right with God. That's what we learn in the scripture. We also learn in the scripture. And I have to say to you, this is both encouraging and convicting for me, this thought. Jesus continually brings his disciples to a point of confrontation and I want to be clear when I say to you this morning, the word confrontation, I don't mean it negatively. Uh, I don't mean it poorly. I don't mean to say that this is a bad thing. It is a very good thing. But the reason that it's challenging for me is because I probably am like many of you. I enjoy a life of comfort. I don't wake up in the morning and go, I just wonder what uncomfortable situation I can put myself in today. And what you notice in the word of God is that as people follow Jesus, he is always stretching them, always expanding their vision, their experiences, their understanding, their reality. And he does that here. He looks at the disciples right in the eyes and he says, who do you say that I am? And I know that we don't feel the confrontation of that because we weren't there. But try to stand in those shoes for a second. Right? It was easy for them to answer the question, who do all of those people say that I am? Oh, Jesus. Let me tell you about those people. Those people think you're John the Baptist. Those people think you're Elijah. Those people think you're a prophet. You see, there's no wrong answer there. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And the moment 
He says, you, the tension fills the room. And now he's talking about me. And I am confronted with the reality of having to articulate to Jesus who I believe him to be. Jesus confronts us in that way. And I think that's an amazing reality about God. He brings us to that point of decision, that point of confrontation, that point in our life where he says, yeah, I know what all of your friends say about me. I know what your coworkers say about me. I know what your classmates say about me. But what do you say about me? What do we learn from this scripture? Thinking positive thoughts about Jesus doesn't make us right with God. We also learn that Jesus will absolutely and continually bring us to this place of confrontation where we are forced to articulate to Jesus who it is that we believe that he is. And so I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? You know, the, the book of Acts there's one of the apostles who's preaching a sermon and he gets into the book of Acts to, to chapter four. If you're making notes, it's verse 12. And he makes this point. He says, for there is no name given under heaven by which a man can be saved except for the name of Jesus. And I want you to know that today. I want you to know that Jesus is more than an important figure in history and a generally good guy and a compassionate person and a miracle worker. Jesus, hear me, Jesus is the only one that can save you. He is our liberator. He is our Messiah. He is our anointed one. He is our Christ. He is the only one who has been sent from heaven to give us hope. And I know oftentimes in our culture, we use the word believe. Do you believe? Oh, I believe. I believe. And so often when we use that term, we're talking about an intellectual belief. Do you believe that God exists? Oh, I believe in the existence of God. And we answer that intellectually, right? We answer that with uh, thoughtfully and we say, yes, I believe in the existence of God. I believe that Jesus existed as a person. And we often use that system of thinking to say to ourselves, well, if I believe that Jesus existed and I believe in the existence of God, I must be safe, I must be saved. I must be a Christian. Now listen, if you feel that way, I want to say this gently, but as clearly as I can. The book of James in the Bible, there's a book called James. And James says, you believe in the existence of God. Good. Even the demons in hell believe in the existence of God. So the point that I'm making with you this morning is this intellectual belief in the existence of God doesn't make us right with God, doesn't give us peace with God. What does? Embracing Jesus as our liberator, as our savior, as the anointed one, 
as the Messiah, as the Christ. It is moving, I guess, if you'll look back with me in the scripture, it's moving from verse 28 to verse 29. Going from Jesus is a great person that does good things in our society to he is the one who can liberate me. And when you get to the place that you can have your being and live in verse 29, where you understand that Jesus is the liberator, there's where you find peace with God. There's where you find hope, not just for eternity, but in the here and now. There's where you are filled with joy and purpose and meaning and power to live for Christ in your everyday life. I share this with you because I think it's an important conversation for us in 2022. That Jesus is the one who redeems us and liberates us. And when we talk with our friends or hang out with our family, talk with our classmates or interact with people at work, and we talk about Jesus, there's so many people around us that have positive thoughts about Jesus but they've never surrendered their life to the Messiah. There's people that we bump shoulders with every day that think that Jesus was a compassionate guy that did good things for the community, but they've never turned from their rebellion towards God and said, Jesus, I put my trust in you. You are the liberator. You are the one who saves me. And I think it's important for us not just to understand this, but to feel the importance of our friends and our loved ones and our classmates and our coworkers of making that transition from verse 28 to verse 29, from Jesus is a cool guy to he is the one who can singularly save my soul. So this morning, the way that we're going to end our time is with prayer time. And we're actually going to open the altars today for prayer time because I'm convinced that you and I probably are similar in this one respect, that we both know people who live in verse 28. They believe that Jesus existed. They think he was a good person, taught great things to love our neighbors did exciting things, would have been fun to be around, and that's about it. It's an incomplete view. And so I'm going to invite you in just a few moments to come to this altar and pray for our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, our neighbors, our family members, that God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty would take those people living in verse 28 and move them over to verse 29 so that their view of Jesus would be more than he's a good guy. It would be, he is my Messiah. He is the one who has saved me. You see, we have a spiritual culture that has a ton of good thoughts about Jesus, but they've never yielded to him, surrendered to him, placed their hope and their faith in him. And so I'm gonna ask you this morning to think about those people that you know, 
that fit that description. They're living in verse 28. And in just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come forward and just spend some time at the altar praying. If you physically can, I invite you to come and just kneel at the altar in a moment and pray. And if you can't kneel because there's some physical things that you've got going on, then come and just stand at the altar and pray for your friend or your coworker, your neighbor who thinks positive thoughts about Jesus but has never said, my Messiah, my liberator. And then when we open the altar for prayer time, there is a really high probability that in this very room, there's somebody living their life in verse 28. You think good thoughts about Jesus, think he was an important guy, but you've never put your trust in him. You've never put your faith in him. You've never said, oh, Jesus, would you liberate me from my bondage? And this morning, you would have the courage and you would sense that God is calling you to do that. When we open the altar for people to come and pray, I'm going to stand right here and I'm inviting you to come forward and for you and I to pray together as you take that step from saying Jesus was a great guy to Jesus is my Messiah. Jesus is the one who's saving me. I want to invite you to make that decision this morning. I want to be clear that you are invited to make the transition this morning from verse 28 to verse 29, where you make that bold declaration, you are my liberator. Would you make that decision today? Would you stand to your feet this morning, all of us? We're going to bow for prayer. And then we'll open the altars for you to come forward and just pray for the person that you love, for the person that you want to see move from verse 28 to 29, to move from a respect of Jesus to a yielding and a submission to Jesus. Father, we thank you for such a glorious morning, incredible music and time of singing and worshiping you, moving scriptures on the screen that bring us to this place of loving you more deeply. Incredible couple of verses in your word this morning. We have been enriched. We have been blessed. We have been filled. And now, Lord, we are prepared to give that away. We are prepared to spend time interceding for others on their behalf before you that they might taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, Lord, hear our prayers now as we come forward and we intercede for people to know you fully as Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.